You are listening to the official podcast of Salem Tabernacle in Beacon, New York, a community of people devoted to experiencing life as God meant it to be. The lectionary texts for today take us through our verse for the year that was given in January. And so I'm going to read a couple of texts, and then the greatest reader on planet Earth is going to read the gospel for us. Haggai chapter 2, verses 1 through 9. In the seventh month, on the 21st day of the month, the word of the Lord came by the hand of Haggai the prophet. Speak now to Zerubbabel, the son of Shalitiel, governor of Judah, and to Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, and to all the remnant of the people, and say, Who is left among you who saw this house in its former glory? How do you see it now? Is it not as nothing in your eyes? You now be strong, O Zerubbabel, declares the Lord. Be strong, O Joshua, son of Jehozadak, the high priest. Be strong, all of you people of the land, declares the Lord. Work, for I am with you, declares the Lord of hosts. According to the covenant that I made with you when you came out of Egypt, my spirit remains in your midst. Fear not, for thus says the Lord of hosts, yet once more in a little while I will shake the heavens and the earth and the sea and the dry land, And I will shake all the nations so that the treasures of the nation shall come in. And I will fill this house with glory, says the Lord of hosts. The silver is mine and the gold is mine, declares the Lord of hosts. The latter glory of this house shall be greater than the former, says the Lord of hosts. And in this place I will give peace. Salem declares the Lord of hosts. And then in Job chapter 19, he says, Oh, that my words were written. Oh, that they were inscribed in a book. Oh, that with an iron pen and lead they were engraved in the rock forever. For I know that my Redeemer lives, and at the last he will stand upon earth. And listen to this. And after my skin has been thus destroyed, yet in my flesh I shall see God. And then in 1 Corinthians it says, If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. And now the reading of the gospel. A reading from the gospel of Luke 20, 27 to 39. There came to him some Sadducees, those who denied that there is a resurrection. And they asked him a question saying, teacher, Moses wrote for us that if a man's brother dies, having a wife but no children, the man must take the widow and raise up offspring for his brother. Now there were seven brothers. The first took a wife and died without children. And the second and the third took her and likewise all seven left no children and died. Afterward, the woman also died. In the the resurrection, therefore, whose wife will the woman be? For the seven had her as wife. And Jesus said to them, The sons of this age marry and are given in marriage. But those who are considered worthy to attain to that age and to the resurrection from the dead, neither marry nor are given in marriage, for they cannot die anymore, because they are equal to angels and are sons of God, being sons of the resurrection. But that the dead are raised, even Moses showed in the passage about the bush, where he calls the Lord, where he calls the Lord the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. Now he is not God of the dead, but of the living, for all live to him. Then some of the scribes answered, Teacher, you have spoken well. The word of the Lord. So we are heading towards a time where we're going to begin to broach the subject of the resurrection of all things and the return of Christ to the earth. And we have to reframe and reimagine what it means to be people who are waiting for the resurrection of all things. One of our problems is that when we don't have an imagination for the resurrection, meaning not the resurrection that happened, not the first great Easter, but the final Easter, when all things are raised, right? When cemeteries become gardens that sprout. We are going to go to Mysticville today, everybody. 
So if you're looking for that message that you could take home and use at work on Monday, stop it. Because if we don't stretch our imagination and learn to become like these kids that we hear in the room, we're going to be neo-Sagixes who intellectually believe in the resurrection but functionally have forgotten everything about it. And when you forget about the resurrection and it's not part of your daily wrestling, say wrestling, not understanding, we will never understand the fullness of what is to come, but we can wrestle with it and we can make headway. See, God is not a mystery because he can't be figured out. He's a mystery because he never stops being figured out. There's a difference between those two things. He's not a mystery because it's impossible to figure him out. He's a mystery because what there is to know about him is never ending. He keeps you young. He keeps you a student. He keeps revealing himself to you. He keeps surprising us. And the minute he no longer surprises us, we need to re-engage and become infant childlike again. Because they're always surprised. I scare Theo constantly. Uh, He doesn't know that I'm going to do it again. And we need to become like that. If we don't wrestle with our understanding of the resurrection, one thing that will happen is we will begin to overemphasize measurable personal experience. Because if without an imagination of the resurrection, all we will have is measurable personal experience to go off of. Not just personal experience, but experience we can measure and name. How many have had a moment where you realize God was doing something in your life long before you knew he was? How many of you had that moment where it was like, oh my gosh, God surprised me by being in this thing I didn't know he was in the whole time? So that means that there was a part of your life, all of us, where we did not know we were having an experience with him until he showed us that the whole time we were, in fact, having an experience with him. Amen? So just because you don't know you're having the experience doesn't mean you're not having the experience. And one of the romantic ways that God bursts into our life is to not give us an experience now, but to reveal to us he has always been involved in everything that's been going on, even when we didn't know. Because, spoiler alert, we don't know everything. But when we forget about the resurrection, where all experiences will fully come alive, our conscious ones and our subconscious ones, all of those experiences won't be lost. All of them will come alive. All of them will have their full meaning. But if we don't wrestle with the resurrection, we will only ever surmise our life based on the experiences we can measure, and we will reduce it to mere feeling and moments and not a whole narrative that God is going to raise from the dead along with us. So, to make it simple, we will either try to hold on to the best memories we ever had and keep trying to replicate them, or we will be held onto by the worst moments of our life and feel like we can't break free from them. Without understanding the resurrection... We will either hold on to our best moments and try never to let go of them, or we will be choked by our worst moments, never able to break free of them. Ready? But when we wrestle with the world to come, and we know that what is isn't all there will ever be, we can pass through our good moments, we can pass through our bad moments, After they're gone, we can lay them to rest, knowing that they're all going to be raised. The good ones will be raised to what they were pointing to, and the bad ones will be healed. But we've done two things. We've either said, we'll see what happens when the resurrection comes. It's too much. I've heard too many different things. I'm no longer thinking about it. Or we have it so answered, so reduced that it's no longer a miracle, and we got people out there telling us all the time exactly what day Jesus is coming back, and do you know how many of them have been right so far? Anybody who has ever said 
that Jesus is coming back on this date, every single one of them has been wrong. Get off that team. They haven't won a game. It would have been so dope if he came back just now. It would have been such a good moment. No. Personal experience is meant to throw us toward the resurrection. It's never meant to be held onto and then idolized. It's meant to be part of what we move through, to know that we are alive and to know that we're heading somewhere, that we're in a current that is going someplace. The Sadducees did not believe in the resurrection, and so they bring up marriage to Jesus and there's a lot of ways we can talk about this, but they bring up marriage to Jesus and say, like, you know, this, this woman, you know, there was a lot of tragedy, and she ended up marrying all seven brothers in, in heaven in the resurrection. Whose wife will she be? And it's funny. The Sadducees and Pharisees either bring up marriage to try to tell Jesus, like, marriage is going to make it into heaven, or they bring up divorce. Moses said that we could issue a certificate of divorce. What do you say? Do you notice that both of those instances, they either idolize it and treat it like it's going to last forever, or they minimize it entirely and say we can reject it. And that's what happens when we don't believe in the resurrection. We either idolize, circumst- we idolize personal experience or we push it away and try to get away from it. So many of us live our life defined by the last thing we know that happened. But we don't know everything that's happening. We don't know what he's doing in our life right now. We know that he is but we don't know what he's doing. And we have to have a larger mind. Here's the other thing about the Sadducees. They idolize personal experience, and of all the groups that Jesus encountered, this is the last boring thing I'm going to say, and then we're going to go to Mysticville. So this is like the, me saying, all right, this is like, here's how you put your seatbelts on before we fly to Mysticville. If the plane starts to crash, it's going to crash, so you don't need to worry about parachutes or anything. We're flying. And the Pharisees, the scribes, the Sadducees. The Sadducees were the group of Jewish people that never listened to what any other rabbi said. They only, they prided themselves on reading the scriptures apart from the tradition of the rabbis. I don't care what anybody else said, it's me and my Bible. That's who the Sadducees were. And they didn't listen to the Pharisees, and they didn't listen to the rabbis, and they didn't read commentaries, and they didn't listen to anything extra-biblical. They were the group, and sadly, so much of the church is now, that only reads the Bible and rejects anything that was said over the last 2,000 years of the Holy Spirit's witness to the church. And those people who idolize their own personal reading over what's come before them, they're the people who don't believe in the resurrection. Their imagination is diminished to the size of what only they agree with. And I don't know, we got an election coming up, and have you seen people who are reduced to the size of what they only agree with? It's a disaster. Social networks are shrinking to the size of what we all agree with. Families are shrinking to the size of what we all agree with. Church doctrines are shrinking to the size of what we all agree with. And this is because we don't have an imagination for the fact that Jesus is going to come and he's going to do something to all of human history. We can be neo-Sadducees if we don't sit there and say, we have to be a church that's willing to try to be a little spooky to be a little weird, and to enter into the mystery of what it means that Jesus is going to come back and he's going to lay his hands on everything that has ever happened in your life, my life, and in the life of the world and bring it to full healing. What does that mean for my life? Let's start here. Ian, you could put up the first chart. We're off. We took off. All right, I have to remember, that's backwards for me. Okay, so I'm going to break every rule. I'm going to look at the screen behind me. So this is how most of us were taught that the return of Jesus was going to happen. We're in the present, and sometime in our future, tomorrow or the future, Jesus is going to come back. And we don't know when, but we know he's going to come back in the future. And there is... 
There are so many problems with this understanding that he's coming back at a point later. Because look at all the time that's behind us. He's coming back sometime then. What's happened is done. He's going to come back sometime in the future. But when Jesus gives his name, what is his name? He said, and Stephanie sang it 45 times today. He said, I am and I am right now. This is Jesus. I am right now. I am the beginning and the end. So Jesus, his name is time. Stretch your brain. Don't pull a hamstring in your brain today. His name is time. He is right now in the present, both the beginning and the end. So when he comes back, he cannot only come back to the future because he's also, because that's who he is. So you can show the next one. When he comes back, this is how he comes back. He doesn't come back in time. He comes back to time. That's why Jesus says no one knows the day or hour, because he's coming back to all of them. Sit with this. He is Alpha and Omega, and when Alpha and Omega shows up, he covers all of time. So this means... That everything that has happened that I've moved on from is still going to be affected by Jesus when he returns. Every good memory that I've lost that I can't get back to, the good old days, I almost just started listing what they were and I won't, right? Before kids, you know, things like when you had time and you could sleep. Like, when you think back to the good old days, those Christmases that gripped you, those birthdays, that, the good times, and you're like, I wish I could just go back one more time. You will. Because <laughs> he's going to make all of them rise again, and everything they were pointing to, we will be living in. We won't be living in the memory. We will be living in what it was pointing to that gave us that feeling that we got when we had the memory. Everything vile and tragic and abusive and evil and oppressive that happened, we can't go back and change it. How many would go back and change something if you could? He's still going to show up to those moments, and he's not done doing what he's going to do in them yet. I've moved on from mistakes that I've made, and I can't re-influence myself anymore to not make that mistake. But Jesus is somehow mystically, remember we're going to Mysticville, he's somehow mystically still there with me, still talking to me. And something is going to happen that heals that situation. Have you heard the phrase in Romans, we hope against What does it mean to hope against hope? Why would anyone want to do that? Because there's two hopes. There's a carnal hope that says, I'm here today, and I trust that things will be better tomorrow. That's a carnal hope. That's a hope that you don't need to be a Christian to believe in. I'm here today, and I hope that tomorrow's better. But we hope against that hope. Why? Because we believe that things are going to be better tomorrow and they're going to get better yesterday. We believe that our lives will get better tomorrow and they can get better yesterday. Well, that doesn't make any sense. Welcome to being a disciple of Jesus Christ. He never made any sense to the people who listened to him. And this is one person's attempt to explain what it means that an omnipresent God is coming back. You've heard me say it before. An omnipresent God isn't just everywhere. He's also every when. He's coming back to redeem time. Time can only take from us now. 
Some of us have experienced this in losing a loved one. Some of us have experienced this with health issues. I'm coming face to face with the remembrance that I'm not the Superman that I thought I was. I look like him, obviously, but I'm not. I'm face to face with the reality that things are going to go wrong and then we're going to try to make them right and they're going to go wrong again. And we're going to try to make them right and every time we make them right, something gets better but something else gets weaker. How many people have had multiple surgeries in the room? Something gets better but it's exhausting, it's trying, it's expensive, it's all of these things. We're faced with the fact that time takes. Well, guess what? Jesus isn't just coming to heal us. He's coming to heal time so that time gives back everything it took. This is our Christian hope. That Jesus won't just come in the future and take care of things from that point moving forward. But C.S. Lewis said this. Heaven, once attained, will not just work from that point forward, but will work backwards and turn every moment of tragedy into the Garden of Eden again. Heaven works in both directions. We have to begin, I can feel it in the room, we have to begin to get back to having fun, articulate, non-defensive, non-combative conversations about what all of this can mean. Otherwise, we become the Sadducees who think whatever happens in life is all there is. And if that's true, as Paul says, if in this life we have hope only, we are of all people most to be pitied. Because if this life is all there is, then everybody who's selfish is right for being selfish. Because you might as well get it while you still can. But we know As C.S. Lewis also said, if you have a desire that nothing in this world can satisfy, it must mean that you were made for an entirely different world. And that world is going to come on earth as it is, and he's going to come. And I'm just having so many memories. And Tim Keller one time said, no, no, Elise Fitzpatrick said, everything you were looking for in every vice you've ever had. Whether it's stuff you're looking at on your phone, whether it's drinking too much to numb your life, we go old school, whether it's smoking and chewing tobacco, watching PG-13 movies. I would say R, but nobody watches R movies. We're Christians, right? Everything you were looking for in all that the relationship you weren't being faithful to, the vengeance you were seeking, the destruction your anger caused, everything you were looking for. She said, when you see Jesus, you will look at him and say, that's what I've been looking for in all that stuff. This is what I've been waiting for the whole time. Just so you know, I'm going to quote Frozen 2 in a few minutes because I'm a dynamic pastor who can quote St. Athanasius and then Elsa or her mother. I don't know who sang it. You should be happy that I don't know who sang what I'm about to quote in a minute. All I know is I've listened to that whiny little soundtrack so many times. And this morning when I was praying a line, I was like, I think I read this line in like one of Chris Green's books. I was like, no, it wasn't in one of his books. Maybe it was in one of my commentaries. I was like, no, I was like, oh, it's a song. It's a song. And I was like, I started singing it to myself. And I'm like, where did I hear this song? Probably, probably like some classical music or something like that. And I was like, no, it was frozen. This is where I'm at in my life right now. The Holy Spirit's like, how can I get through to him what it is that I'm trying to say? We'll get there. We'll get there shortly. The Haggai text says, who here remembers the glory of the former house? And he says, now what do you see? And he says, it's as nothing to you. 
because we see the good that we've lost as never able to being attained again. So we either try to re-replicate it or everything else that we experience will never be as good as our best experience that's gone. And so we're always chasing another best experience so that we could feel woken up again. And so we force experience on people. We force our Christian experience on everybody as if everyone's got to get saved the way I did, has to get baptized the way I did, has to speak in tongues the way I do, has to experience the... No. My job is not to force my good experience on you. It's to share my good experience with you and partake of your experience as well. But we start robbing experience when we think we'll never get it back again. He says this, work for my spirit remains with you. What does it mean to work? It's, it means, in the Hebrew, it means to keep fashioning. You're, we're trying to put together a life. We're trying to put together a hope. We're trying to put together a life for our friends. We're trying to put together a life for our families. We're trying to put together a life that is pleasing to the Lord. And day in and day out, something comes and just knocks it down or breaks it. It's like an iPhone. You just can't drop them. And then you, they're expensive to fix. And life feels this way. And he says, work because good times are passing, bad times are passing, but my spirit abides with you. So every time you drop what you're working on, pick it back up, try to fashion it again. You drop it, pick it back up, try to fashion it again. Keep working. Why? Because my spirit is with you. And my spirit is still in all those times that you dropped it and broke it. My spirit, mom and dad, is with you when you made those parenting mistakes. It's still back there. It's not done with you yet. That relationship choice we made, that financial decision that we knew was good, even though everybody told us it wasn't, then we threw out the God told me card, and now none of our friends could speak life into us because we said God told me. And it was a terrible financial decision. He's still with you in the moments that you were making it. Pastor, are you saying it's going to come undone? I don't know. All I know is he's still there, and whatever making it right means to him, that's what he's going to do. He's going to make it right. You could be walking around one day and all of a sudden feel like yourself out of nowhere. Why'd that happen? Because he might have healed something that happened 16 years ago because he's still there. And all of a sudden, he laid hands on you 16 years ago, and it rippled all the way up to your present, and you felt different in that moment. Saints, if we can't imagine this and get excited about it, all we have is a self-help reality called Christianity and a motivational speaker called Jesus. If he's not the most outrageous, mind-blowing, seemingly impossible to understand, almost seems too good to be true and fake kind of God, then he's like anything else. What we're talking about here is a reality that has to bend us beyond all reasoning. You want to know why the book of Revelation is as confusing as it is? Uh, um, Joseph Mangina said this. He said, the book of Revelation takes human explanation to the breaking point because that can't even get at what's actually happening. So it happens to us all the time. We don't have words to explain something, so we say things like, Jacqueline, I love you with the heat of a thousand Tuscan suns. Right? That would burn her face off in real life and mine and all of yours. A thousand suns? That's a lot of sun. Where am I going to get them? Home Depot, do you have a thousand Tuscan suns? What do you mean you're calling the police? Like this, we say things in signs and symbols because we don't have the words to explain what we're really feeling. How much more the Bible? It's called the book of Revelation. So what does he say here? He says, I'm going to shake the nations. What does that mean? It means he's going to get our attention. And I want, I want Ian to put this up. The My Spirit Remains chart. He's going to shake the nations. He's going to get our attentions. Listen to this. This is going to sound... Very creepy. 
So I picked the day that all the kids would be in the room to say it. Just kidding. He's going to get our attention because God wants us focusing on three realities all the time. He wants us focusing on our now, right? Honesty now. You've been hearing me talk about this for weeks. Being honest with our present because he will heal. He's only going to heal the truth of our life. And so to the extent that we ignore the truth of our life, it's not that he won't heal it. It's just that we won't know we're being healed. So be honest now. But then, here's what happens. Moments pass us by. And some of them we wish we could, we hope we never remember them. They're painful. Some of them are so good we wish we could have them again. And you know what we need to do? We need to lay those memories to rest. Your best memories... And your worst ones, lay them to rest. In a Christian funeral, we lay people to rest. Why do we call it laying them to rest? Because Jesus is going to wake them up again. Amen? So we lay them to rest. We don't get rid of them. They're not gone forever. We lay them to rest. And then what do we do from time to time, which is a very healthy thing to do? We visit the gravesite. We visit the cemetery. Not to indulge and stay there forever, but also to once in a while remember, because once in a while we need to remember those things that Jesus will never forget and that he promises to raise one day. We do it with people. We also have to do it with moments and memories. They're gone because time passes by. Lay them to rest. But every once in a while, visit the cemetery. Remember the tough moments of your life. Remember the good moments of your life. Talk about them once in a while. Keep them alive. Why? Because he's going to lay his hands on both and heal both of them. Our best memories will become fully alive again, and our worst ones will be healed. So lay them to rest so they're not plaguing your mind with comparisons, but also go visit because we don't want to forget what he's going to raise up. This is so easy, isn't it? Just kidding. And then he wants us to have hope for our future and our past. Pastor, I don't know how to have hope for the past. We're working on it together. It's why we celebrate Advent over and over and over again, because we need to learn how to process our past, how to process our past into our future, and how to have a Christian hope that helps with that process. He says, I'm going to bring the treasure of the nations in. What does the treasure of the nations mean? It means the gifts of all different kinds of people from all different kinds of places. And now I just want to brag on our church a little bit, okay? Is that okay? Can I just brag on you a little bit? Salem, we have something so special going on here. It's not even funny. People say to me, Pastor Bill, Pastor friends, they say, why aren't you more involved in politics and Beacon? I said, come to Salem Tabernacle on a Sunday morning. It's the best political statement, I think, in the city of Beacon that there is. This is what it looks like when we lay down our affiliations and worship a common God together. In this room right now, we have different genders, different ethnicities, different ages, different body types, different experiences, and we are all here worshiping Jesus, and we can lay down all the things that we could disagree on and worship him together. We are so used to it, we don't know that other people hear this and think we're lying. There must be a lot of tension in your church these days with what's going on politically. Not, no. There's a common mission to see the kingdom come and his will be done on earth as it is in heaven. We talk about things, we argue sometimes, we go back and forth, but it strengthens the family. It doesn't break it. That's what's happening here, the treasures of the nations. And so here's what happens. The full experience of God is when all of our experiences make their way home in him. So there are people here, and this is another part of convergence that I love so much. Yes, we are diverse. Yes, we have different experiences. But you know what we also have in this room? We all come from a lot of different Christian backgrounds here. 
We have people who are Pentecostals. We have people who have evangelical backgrounds. We have people who come from Roman Catholic backgrounds. We have people who were baptized at the age of 45. We have people who were baptized at the age of three months, all in this room right now. And somehow, we can all experience life as God meant it to be together. One day, Grady, wave your hand for a second. Grady back there was outside, and somebody pulled up and said, I'm looking for a church. Does this church believe that speaking in tongues is the initial evidence of the Holy Spirit? And Grady rightly said, some of us do. And the person left. Because we're not a cult. We all don't force each other to believe the same things. Amen. It was a great, grady answer. I have my Christian experience. You have yours. And one is not more right than the other. And honestly, and maybe you saw this, and I heard T.D. Jakes say this on an Instagram short <laughs> when I was doom-scrolling my sorrows away. And he said something, I, I cannot believe the thought never crossed my mind. But he said, nowhere in the Bible do you see demons arguing with each other. The minute you hear that, you're like, where have I been? He said, but when I look at the church, I see Christians arguing with each other about heaven and hell, about baptism, about personal experience, about speaking in tongues. He said, how is it that demons can get along and we can't? He said it so much better than that. But that's a problem. We, would, we seriously need to become a place where we can accept each other's Christian experiences as valid. Is everything okay? Oh, no, I have one right here. I saw you without the kids, and I was like, my God, is everybody okay? Are they gone? Did they go to grandma's? Church is over. Let's go. <laughs> we have to stop the fighting. This should be a place where we honor each other's Christian experiences as valid because the experience God wants us to have can only be experienced when all of our experiences come together. And the fighting's got to stop. People leaving and coming and using staying power all because, well, pastor, you said this and somebody in the church said that. Does leadership believe this and that? We're doing more fighting than Satan's followers. I said, Lord, what's the best advice? And he gave me this phrase, stop. Stop. Thanks, Dad. I needed a laugh. And then he says, your ladder will be greater. And this has everything to do with our children, Salem. We want, listen to this, we want every generation to say, the ladder will be greater. Sneaky way, every one of us wants to be the generation that gets to ladder. That's what we're real always, whatever, you know, this, you know, it's a new season, it's a new day, a fresh anointing's coming our way, ladder will be greater. All that stuff is true, but secretly we want to be the group that gets that ladder portion and then it ends. Like we got it. But what we really want, what we really want, you see, listen, my parents, they got radically saved one day. Radically saved in a moment. Burnt their records, which I wish they didn't. Should have sold them. Different conversation. Right? Radically saved. And you know what? I didn't need to get radically saved. They love their Christian experience, but I bet you they're also happy that I didn't need to get radically saved. Because I was growing up with a more stable view of salvation earlier than them because the latter is greater. And I hope that Sophia even has to get, which I'm not sure, but I hope she has to get even less saved than me. I want her to have radical moments with God, but I want her to understand salvation now in a way that even I didn't. And then I want her to say, I want my kid's ladder to be greater. And then we should have the humility to not be jealous when it happens. It is so the truth. 
So many pastors have said, I want my spiritual sons to do more than I did, and none of them meant it. They still wanted to be the reason why, and they still wanted all of that like tribute to go where it was supposed to go. We have to be willing to say, you know what, my time's done and yours is just beginning. Take it. Take it. And take it some places where I'm going to think they're crazy. I have said stuff to my mom and dad, and they're like, just before you say it into a microphone. And I'm like, I did already. I want Theo, I want Sophia. Listen, one day when Sophia gets up here and preaches, I want her to say stuff where I'm like, I think I might have to talk to a bishop about what she said because I'm not sure. I want her to take my mind past where it could go. And you know what? I want to keep my mind so sharp so that when she takes it past where it could go, it's really good. It's really good. But we can't, like, we, we have to flirt with these things. But it all comes down to, do we really believe that Jesus is coming back to the earth? Not to take us away and destroy what he bled and died for, but to come here and establish his kingdom on as it is. We're hoping that Eden becomes a city. And that every tear is wiped away because every wrong has been made right. And the best part is God is saying, that's what I'm doing. I'm going to do it, but I'm also beginning to do it through you. Are we walking around making wrongs right? Or are we walking around creating new wrongs and making old wrongs wronger? What? petty nonsense are we holding on to that is keeping relationships from thriving because we're annoyed at these various little stancy kind of things and we can't get it together i know it's just not me and jacqueline thank you there have been times recently where we start like we're bickering and we're like wait a minute It's Friday evening. We're having this argument, and I'm starting to feel like the whole weekend is ruined. But it's still 4 p.m. on Friday. Let's can can we just stop? And then the other person's like, "That's a really good idea." And I'm like, "I know. Thank you." No. We have to have an imagination that Jesus is going to come and address every moment we've ever had. Some of that is going to hurt everybody. He's going to put us in the crucible sometimes. He's like, hey, Bill, remember when you said that to Sophia when she was crying for the third time that night? And I'm going to be like, I don't remember. Just, well, let me show you. It's like that commercial where there's a challenge flag, and the husband and the wife can be like, you said that you were going to pack the car. No, I didn't. She throws the flag, and the camera crew comes out. Let's watch what happened. He's like, no, let's not watch what happened. He's going to restore it. But let's live now like we know he's going to address these moments. Is what we're angry about, is what we're fighting about really the kind of stuff that should be deal breakers? Or is it basically us not wanting to try new food because we're a little snobby now? I've been tasting this version of Christianity and I've developed a taste for it. Don't bring any of that new stuff to the table. Why? Why? You'd be surprised to see what the Roman Catholic Church is like in Mexico. It doesn't sound like Roman Catholic churches up here. It sounds like our church just did. Yeah, they move like this sometimes. And the Roman Catholic church too. Do you realize how backwards all these fights are? People, evangelicals will say, the Roman church, they let their priests have too much authority. Do you see the authority we've given to some of our pastors? My God! Yes, men with collars hurt people. So do men with three-piece suits. But also men with collars are holy, and so are men and women with three-piece suits and dresses. Male pastors can hurt people and also be holy. Female pastors can be holy, everybody. Yes, they can. The resurrection actually begins to dismantle these arguments and make them seem silly and dumb. 
Because what Jesus is doing is so much bigger than the petty stuff that we hold back the resurrection with. All right, you ready to quote Frozen? I can see these kids getting restless, and as a parent, my heart is starting to go out to you. You've done a good job. We're going to begin to close. (laughs) Frozen 2. This song popped into my head. We're going to show it twice. Here's the first part. I'm not going to sing it. I'm just going to say it. Where the north wind meets the sea, there's a river full of memory. Sleep, my darling, safe and sound, for in this river all is found. Where the north wind meets the sea, there's a mother full of memory. Come, my darling, homeward bound, and this is the line, when all is lost, then all is found. So I put some parentheses in there. Copyright infringement. <laughs> when the, listen, I'm going in for surgery. This is my last Sunday for two weeks, so we're just throwing it all out there today. I'll be back. Pastor Mark can come next week and clean all this up for me. By the way, Pastor Mark is coming next week, everybody, so that's going to be fun. I'll tell him you say hi. Where the north wind meets the sea, there's a river of life full of memory. Sleep, my darling, safe and sound, which is our blessed assurance. For in this river of life, all is found. Where the north wind meets the sea, there's a mother who is the Holy Spirit, full of every one of our memories. Do this in remembrance of me. Come, my darling, homeward bound. Listen to this line. When all is lost, then all is found. Not when all is lost, it shall be found. It's when all is lost, then it is found. Why? Because Jesus is omnipresent, which means he's also in the place where lost things go. So the minute something is lost, it's somewhere. And even if it's nowhere, an omnipresent God is always somewhere, and he's always in that place we call nowhere. He's where all my lost keys and pens are. Everything you think you've lost is right now currently found and will be introduced back to you, raised and holy, when Jesus comes back. Nothing is lost. Even things that we crumpled up in our own rebellion and arrogance and threw away and threw it into the garbage can, guess who that garbage can is? Jesus. He's in all things. He's everywhere. And if he's everywhere, as St. Augustine said, then that means he's also here and nowhere. So if something went to nowhere, guess who has it? Jesus. And it will be introduced back to us. Nothing is lost that isn't already found. Let's stand to our feet this morning. In the book of Job, that text we read, Job said, When my skin is destroyed, my flesh shall see him. How's that possible? If your skin is destroyed, how's your flesh going to see him? Because Jesus is going to heal everything that's been destroyed. And we see it here. Some of us have sickness in our body. Some of us are worried about the age we're in. Some of us are worried about other people. Some of us are worried about the fact that we feel like time is going too fast. Listen, Salem, we can slow down because all that's lost is found. And even as our skin becomes destroyed, our flesh will see him. He says, my redeemer lives and stands on the earth. We will see him. We can breathe. Because he saw his body and it was destroyed And he knew that his destroyed flesh would be the thing that puts our destroyed skin back together. So here's what I'd like to do. I'm going to pray for the Eucharist. I'm going to ask Elder Bill and Elder Ron to hand it out each on the sides. And then I'm going to stand right here in the middle. And as you come and take Eucharist, I'm going to say something that makes me feel a little bit uncomfortable. But I really do believe God told me to say this. I know that there are people going through worse things than what I'm going to go through this week, hopefully this week, if everything is lined up and I can have the surgery. I'm going to lose part of my toe. 
I'm going to have another surgery on my foot. I'm going to be off my feet for six weeks. Pray for Jacqueline. She now has three kids in the house again. But there's something happening in me over these last few days where I I have all the normal concerns that anybody else would have, but I also feel like God's given me a grace to be able to look at this and say, I see you, we're going to handle this, and we're going to get to the other side of it. And if we get to the other side of it and there's more complications, we'll see them and we'll get to the other side of them. And if all of that unwinds, I'm going to see him and he's going to get me to the other side of all of it. Amen? And so what I want to do, I feel like it is the job of a priest. If we feel that we're filled with something, it's never just for us, it's for you too. And so all I want to do, if you're standing here today saying, I could just use a quick blessing of grace, I feel like I have some for you. And I feel like I want to give it to you. And so as you receive the Eucharist, I just want to put my hand on your forehead with, with a little bit of oil and just say, walk in the grace of God. And I feel like God has given me a measure of this grace to give today. And if you feel like that's what you need, you can stop right here. And if it's not perfectly fine, you can keep going. It's fine. It's fine. And if you you don't feel like you need grace, it's because you have a lot. Find somebody who does and pray with them. Lord Jesus, thank you for being outside of our mind. Thank you for healing in categories that we don't even know exist. Thank you for being good to us in ways that we could see and in ways that we'll see one day. Thank you for holding us together in tough times and for giving us a family here to celebrate good times with. Thank you for everything happening in this church. Thank you for who you're making Salem Tabernacle to be. And I pray that you would continue to bring us to your table and feed us with this most precious holy life that is your life, Lord Jesus. On the night when you were betrayed, you gave thanks. You didn't revile. You gave thanks. And you said, this is my body, which is broken for you. And I'm offering it to you. You're going to break it, and I'm offering it to you. Because the body you're breaking is also the body that's going to heal you. I pray that we would walk in that kind of love this week. That we would look for ways to be loving like that this week. That we would receive that kind of love from people this week. And after supper, you took the cup of wine, and after you had given thanks, you said, this is the blood of the new covenant, which is shed for you who are here and for many who aren't here. This blood is for those who showed up, and this blood is for those who didn't. This blood is for those who are here, and this blood is for those who couldn't be here and for those who wouldn't be here. For the forgiveness of sins. And so, Holy Spirit, I pray that you descend on this bread and make it for your people, the body and blood of Jesus, the food and drink of new and unending life in him, and descend on us also. Forgive us of our sins. Give us an imagination to just begin contemplating your return. Help us to see all the ways that you return each and every day. And then give us a taste and a pining and an advent for that final return when everything is made holy. And teach us to live in the great in-between. These are the gifts of God for the people of God. Nourish on them by faith in your heart. And so everybody... Thanks for listening to the Salem Tabernacle Podcast. For more information about us, including gathering times and our location, check us out online at salemtabernacle.com.